Let's pray together and then I'll read God's word. We're in Philippians and chapter 1. We'll be in Philippians for, for a little while into the summer. That's the plan anyways. We're in Philippians 1 and verses 12 to uh, 24, I believe. And um, I just think it's so fun reading from this giant Bible. Uh, I'm going to do it again. There's, surely there's a story. Somebody knows the story behind this Bible. It's, it's surely been up here for decades, no doubt. But uh, I like when I get to read from it for the Lord's Supper, and it's here, so why not? I'll pray, and then I'll read. Holy Father, thank you that we're together today. Thank you that we're together with each other, uh, because that's good, and it's a blessing. And thank you that we're, we're together with you. Thank you that you're a God who never gives up, who never stops loving us, who isn't surprised or shocked by our failures or by our sins. In fact, you've seen that coming um, before we even conceived of the sins that we've committed. Uh, and, and you're a God who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. You have received us into your family by grace, and you will keep us in your family by grace. We didn't earn our way into your family, and we will not be able to earn our, um, our right to stay in your family, but we don't have to, because you've already received us. And there's much comfort in that. Thank you that you are a God who is approachable, who is eager to receive us, who allows us to sit at your table, all because of the grace that you've shown us through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we're opening your word in the belief that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, in the belief that when we read it by faith, that you speak to us, the God of heaven and earth speaks to us by your Spirit through your word, when we read it by faith. And so I pray that you would give us the gift of faith as we read now. Amen. Philippians 1, and starting in verse 12, Paul speaking. Uh, if you want to picture uh, this letter being written, don't picture Paul at a desk with pen and ink. He didn't write it. He didn't write it with his hands. He, he spoke to, there's a fancy word for it, he spoke to an amanuensis. An amanuensis was seated at a desk with a pen and parchment and was writing, uh, I picture very rapidly, as Paul just, I, I, I imagine, who knows, but I just picture him pacing and full of energy and excitement and speaking very fast and the amanuensis trying to keep up and telling him to slow down. Uh, that's the way I hear it when I read, especially when I read the book of Philippians. It just feels like it leaps off the page. So this is what Paul said. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Just keep that phrase in mind, what has happened to me, because what happened to him, we'll talk about that in a minute. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know 
that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you in your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Well, there's an awful lot there. That's, that's a longer passage than I usually preach on because there's just so much in there. And so I really, how I want to approach all of that is I want to focus on the last part and then, I'll, then we'll see how that last part, how that relates to and is reflected in the earlier verses. So in that last section, what Paul's doing, I expect you picked up on that, Paul is comparing the pros and cons of living and dying. He's having an internal dialogue with himself and trying to figure out which is better, to die or to live. Now when I read that, when I read Paul kind of debating with himself, discussing with himself, which do I prefer? Would I rather die or would I rather live? I immediately always, whenever I read that, I always think of a famous character from literature who is having a similar internal dialogue about the pros and cons of living and dying, but this character reaches a very different conclusion. I can, I can see some of you already know where I'm going with this. You're already thinking of it. It's a very famous speech in a very famous play. It begins with these words, to be or not to be. That is the question. That, that, that is a soliloquy in Hamlet and in that moment, it's Act 3, uh, uh, Hamlet is having a debate with himself. He's having the same debate that the Apostle Paul was having with himself in Philippians 1. In fact, I am convinced, I've never read this anywhere, someone who knows what they're talking about might know differently, but I feel like Shakespeare was thinking of Philippians 1 when he wrote uh, that soliloquy in Hamlet. I mean, I mean Paul, just exactly the same way that Paul is saying, well, would it, is it better to die or is it better to live? That's what Hamlet's doing. That's the question, right? To be means to be alive. Or not to be. Not to be is to be dead. He's saying to be or not to be, which is better? He goes on, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles by opposing and them. Now, that's a poetic way of wondering whether 
It's better to keep living because if you keep living, the problem with that scenario, if you keep living, is that you expose yourself to all of the potentially bad things that might happen, that you don't know, but are just around the corner. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That's what he's talking about. All the bad things. Outrageous fortune. Whatever lies ahead. If I keep living, well, I'm going to expose myself to those slings and arrows. And that makes me worried. I don't want that. So maybe it's better to avoid the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and take up arms against those troubles and end my own life. That's what he means. Take up arms against the troubles means I kill myself and then I don't have to worry about that. Which is better? He goes on. I'm skipping ahead just a bit. He says to die. To sleep. To sleep. Perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. But that the dread of something after death, that undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than to fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Right? So if you followed that, Hamlet's conclusion is that, well, okay, well, life is bad. Life is bad because we never know what lies ahead, but we can be pretty sure that sooner or later, something bad is going to happen because it does to everybody. Sooner or later, something, something difficult, something tragic is inevitably going to happen to me and make my life miserable. It will because it does to everyone. And when that happens... When life gets miserable because the bad things happen, then death feels like the better option. But none of us really knows what happens after death. And for all we know, what happens after death is a whole lot worse than what happens during life. And so out of fear of the unknown, death makes us afraid to end our own lives. And so we choose to go on living we choose to be. That is a bleak outlook on the choice between life and death. I mean, if, if you follow that, he basically says that, well, life is bad, but at least we know what we're getting. At least we know. And death is unknown and quite probably worse than life, so we'll choose bad life over unknown death. That, I don't know if you noticed... But that is the exact, exact mirror opposite of how the Apostle Paul approaches the question. I want you to listen again to Paul's internal dialogue, Paul's to be or not to, to be soliloquy. Here's what he says. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, well, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. Let's, let's, read, let's read what he's saying there. My desire is to die. If you give me my choice, my preference would be that I would die. 
Because in dying, I would depart and be with Christ. And that is far better than staying here on earth. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so I expect that I will remain in the flesh for your sake. But if it was up to me, I'd rather die and go be with the Lord. For Hamlet, life is awful and death is worse. For Paul, life is awesome and death is better. So what's the difference between the two? How can we be like Paul and not like Hamlet? Don't you want the Paul version? Right? Life is awesome and death is better. Well, what's the difference? The difference is verse 21. In fact, just the first half of verse 21. That's the difference. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. That's the difference. If your life is Christ, then death is gain. But if you're living for anything else, right? if something else is driving your life, if for you... To live is something else, something other than Christ, then death is loss. Right? Fill that sentence in with any other word you want, and it doesn't work. Right? For me, to live is self. Right? I mean, people don't usually say that, but a lot of people do live for themselves, live for their own pleasure. Right? If if yourself and your pleasure is your highest value in life, if that's the case then death is definitely loss. Because your pursuit of pleasure comes to an end when you die. How about this? For me to live is work. Well, it's true that a lot of people do live for their work. If you live for your work, then death is loss. Because it brings that to an end. If you haven't retired already by the end of your life, then death, death... Death definitely brings your work to an end. Well, how about something more noble? How about for me to live as family? Well, family does bring a lot of meaning and joy to life. Family is a blessing from the Lord. But again, if if that's all you're living for, then death is not gain. Death ends that. How about something even more noble? How about for me to live is to serve? That is a truly beautiful and meaningful way to live. It really is. But still, if your greatest value is to serve, death brings that service to an end. It's not gain. But if, like Paul, we can say, for me, to live is Christ, then death truly is gain. Because in that case, death... Death doesn't terminate your devotion. Death culminates it. Death brings you into the very presence of the object of your devotion forever. And in that case, death is net gain, which doesn't negate the fact that death is still sad for those who are left behind, but it does deliver us from death being tragic. And it delivers us from the fear of death. To use a biblical phrase... Death no longer has dominion over us, right? Death is still around and we still die, but death doesn't get the final word. Death no longer has dominion over us when it's true of us that to live is Christ. All right, well, what does it mean, though? When Paul says, for me to live is Christ, what does that mean? 
Let's analyze that a little bit. This is not a statement about death. Right? This is not a statement about what happens to us when we die. This is a statement about life. This is a statement about what happens to us right now, right here, today. What does it mean that for Paul to live is Christ? I want that. But if I want that, I have to know what it means. What does it mean to live is Christ? Let me ask a slightly different question that gets at the same idea. What is the goal of the Christian life? If your answer to that question is heaven, going to heaven is the goal of the Christian life, may I suggest that that's a little bit misguided? May, in fact, may I put it even more bluntly, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> if, 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 if you think that going to heaven is the goal of the Christian life, uh, you're mistaken. It's not. Heaven is the destination. Heaven is where we're headed. The Bible promises that. And heaven is beautiful, and it's perfect, and it's good. But the goal of the Christian life is to glorify God. The goal of the Christian life is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we will do that when we're in heaven, but we can do that right now on earth while we live. Right? That was clearly the goal of Paul's life. Right? That's why he said, for me to live is Christ. To live, for me to be alive, for me to live, is to live for Christ. My heart beats for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what gets me excited. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning, is the glory of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Swap in a different word for that. For me to live is money. Right? Do you know anyone like that? For, for them to live is money? When, 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 you're, when your life is devoted to one thing, Right? You orient your whole life around it. The person who says, for me to live is money, they think about money all the time. Right? They're always talking about money. They're always thinking about how much money they have. They're thinking about how much money they can make. They, they work hard for money. They dream about money. Their life is all about money. It orients around money. Well, for Paul, it was Christ. He was that way about Christ. Thought about Christ. Talked about Christ. Lived for Christ. For him to live was Christ. And, and, and those first two words there are very important because that makes it personal. The first two words, for me. For me. I personally have embraced Christ not just as my Savior, but as my way of life. And that's not true for everyone in the world. It was true for Paul. For me. That's what he says. It's not, it's not true for everyone. It's not even true for everyone who, who wears the name Christian, who calls himself a Christian. It's not for me to live as Christ. It's not even true of everyone who attends church on a Sunday morning. It doesn't necessarily mean that for you to live as Christ because you show up for church on a Sunday morning. It's a commitment that each of us needs to make in the depths of our own heart. Each of us. For me. For you. It's not a given. It's not a default position. It's something we choose and pursue. For me, to live as Christ. As for me, I don't know about everyone else and I don't answer for everybody else, but as for me, I will choose to value Christ over all other things. As for me, I will put my own agenda and my own preferences behind those of Christ. I will live for Christ. I will make sacrifices in order to follow where he leads, even if it's not where I wanted to go. 
I will willingly lay aside my own glory in order that I might celebrate his glory. For me, to live as Christ. What might that look like for me or for you? We see what it looks like for Paul in the first verses of our passage. That's why I wanted to cover that first, okay? For Paul to live as Christ. Now let's see how he lives that out in his own life. Verses 12 to 18 give us a picture, right? The context of verses 12, uh, well, of the whole book of Philippians is that Paul is writing while incarcerated in Rome. That's what, remember when he, when he said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. When he talks about that, what has happened to me, he's talking about that he's been arrested and he's currently, as he's writing Philippians, as he's dictating it to his amanuensis, he is currently uh, under arrest. He's not in prison. He's under house arrest. And the way that that worked, uh, under house arrest, he was chained, physically chained, to a succession of Roman guards, palace guards, who would take shifts and come and chain themselves to him to make sure that he wasn't going to make a getaway. Right? And so what's ha- his situation now is he's in this home, and he's chained to a succession of palace guards, and he has appealed his case to Caesar, and he's awaiting a verdict on the criminal charges that have been weighed against him. He doesn't know what the verdict is going to be while he's writing Philippians. Either he will be vindicated, and the charges against him will be uh, dropped, in which case he will be released and free to go. He'll be a free man and free to go wherever he wants. That's one possible, even plausible scenario. Or he will be convicted of the crimes that he has been charged of, in which case he will be executed. And he doesn't know which one of those two things is going to happen as he writes this letter. That's where living for Christ has led Paul. To use Hamlet's language, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune have led him to house arrest and possible execution. Now, at face value, that, that seems like life couldn't really get any worse than that, right? That's pretty bad. And yet, that's not at all how Paul sees it. Because for him to live is Christ. So if that's the circumstance he finds himself in, right, chained to a palace guard under house arrest awaiting possible execution, well, if that's his situation, there must be a reason for it, and there must be a way to live for Christ in that context. And sure enough, he says that his difficult circumstances have resulted in the advancement of the gospel. How so? Well, these imperial guards have been chained to him in succession. they got to sit next to him and listen to him explain exactly why it is that they are chained to him. Right? Let me, hey, we got a few hours here, buddy. Let me tell you a story. You want to know why you're chained to me? Allow me to share. And one after another, he's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with these palace guards. He says, ah, it's spread through the whole guard. They all have heard the story about Jesus Christ because they've all had to take their turns sitting next to me. And for that, I rejoice. For that, I'm thankful that I'm here and not anywhere else. For that, this is worth it. That's what Paul's saying. He's, he's saying, look, I would have been doing this no matter what. This is what I do. I tell people about Jesus. I can do that if I'm free. I can do that if I'm chained up. For me, to live is Christ. That's what he's saying there. And then he goes on and says, you know what? Not only am I sharing the message of Jesus to every single 
person who's chained up to me, to every person I see. But the people who are on the outside, who are not in chains for Christ, are, are feeling empowered to preach Christ as well. They're gaining courage and strength knowing what I'm doing here. Knowing that I'm being a faithful witness here is giving them courage to proclaim Christ. And then he goes on and says, oh, and sure, sure, some of it are doing it just to spite me. I get that. Some of, some of it want to take over my leadership position in the church. I get that. They see this as their opportunity. I'm out of the way, so they're going to ramp up their ministry to kind of take my place. What do I care? It's, it, it's never been about me anyways. At least they're preaching. At least Christ is being proclaimed. That's what I live for. I don't live for my freedom. I don't live for my reputation. I don't live for my status in the church. I live for Christ and his glory. So if his name is being proclaimed, I don't care what the reason is, I'm going to rejoice. See, instead of advocating for himself, he's advocating for Christ. That's what it meant for Paul to live for Christ. To live is Christ. What will it mean for you and I? I don't know. I know this, I wish I was more like that. Our calling and our context are different than his, obviously. My calling is different than yours, obviously. But all of us are called to live for Christ. All of us. All of us are called to put Christ's agenda ahead of our own. All of us are called to value his glory over our freedom, over our reputation, over our glory. Each morning, we should be asking ourselves, how can I live for Christ today? How can I live for Christ when the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune hit me today? And by the way, we don't believe in outrageous fortune. We believe in God's sovereignty. So how can I respond to the glory of Christ when in God's sovereignty, he puts me in a situation that I wouldn't prefer to be in today? Each decision we make, we should be asking ourselves, how will this decision promote the glory of Christ in my own life and in the world? Do you know people who actually live like that? I mean, that's preacher talk, right? That, that's lofty Sunday morning talk. Do you know people who live like that? They're rare. They're rare. Probably no one lives like that all the time, let's be honest, right? We're not glorified yet. We're not perfect yet. But even meeting someone who does that most of the time is pretty rare and pretty special. I don't know. Maybe you're thinking of someone. I hope you are. I hope you know people like that. I'm thinking of someone I know back in Milwaukee. His name is Jim Kennedy. Jim, I'll tell you a little bit about Jim. Jim was wrongfully accused of a crime he did not commit. I'm convinced of that. He did not commit this crime. He was convicted of it. He ended up serving time in prison. A long time in prison. He ended up eventually being released. His accuser was proven to be lying. His innocence was established beyond all reasonable doubt. And yet, due to the way the legal system works, he was not able to get his conviction removed from his record. While he was in prison, he interacted every day with convicted criminals, hard people. And during that time, during those interactions, Jim, the Lord just really put it on Jim's heart uh, for prison ministry. He said, this is, this is what I'm here for. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to give my life to if and when I get out. Prison ministry. 
And that is what he has done. That is what he has devoted himself to since his release. That's how I got to know him. I have never once heard Jim complain about his false conviction. Never. And honestly, I've never once heard him complain about anything else, ever. I'm not kidding. I'm sure Jim has bad days. I'm sure he has moments when he loses his temper. I'm sure he says things that he regrets. I'm sure there are times when he's not totally overflowing with joy. But honestly, I haven't seen it. Ever. I've known him most of my life, since I was a a fairly young boy because my parents were involved in prison ministry and that's how um, I met him when I was a kid and then when I was old enough I got involved uh, through his ministry. Every single time I've been around him without exception his words and his actions point to Jesus Christ. So Jim is not allowed to go into prisons to mentor inmates uh, because of his status as an ex-convict. So what he does is he mentors the mentors who do go in. And he also does a lot of public speaking. He's a great public speaker. And so Jim comes to churches, and he speaks about prison ministry, and he often will open, when he's at a church, uh, he will often open with these words. My name is Jim Kennedy, and I am an ex-convict. He does not bother to explain that he was innocent of the crime that he was accused and convicted of. He just says he's an ex-convict. And then he asks... Anyone else in the room an ex-convict? And then he just stands there and waits. It's awkward. (laughs) He just stands there. And then usually, eventually, someone will get it. And they will slowly raise their hand. And then others. You can see the light bulbs going on around the room. Others will start to raise their hand as people realize, oh... This is a setup. He's making the point that we're all ex-convicts because we've all broken God's law. And then he'll go on to preach a message about how we are all, without exception, lawbreakers. That makes us criminals, all of us. But we are forgiven. We are forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty, paid the debt for our lawbreaking. See... Jim uses the injustice that was done to him not as an opportunity to complain and to be bitter, but as an opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim his glory. What happened to Jim is not beautiful. It's not. It's ugly. But God has taken that and he has turned it into something beautiful and the life that Jim is living to the glory of Christ, that's beautiful. When we're able to do that, when we're able to say along with Paul and along with Jim that to me, to live is Christ. When we can say that and mean it and live a life that confirms it, then we will know what it feels like to believe that death is gain. Now please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that only the people who live for Christ all the time are going to heaven. I'm not saying that. That would be a works-based salvation. That's not what I'm saying. If anyone is going to heaven, it is only by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? What I'm saying is that the people who live like that now, in this life, who live for Christ, who for, who for them to live as Christ, they live like that now, they experience the blessing 
of knowing, like Paul, that to die is gain. And when we know that, when we really know it, not just in our mind, but in the depth of our heart, in the core of our being, then we are able to have joy in all circumstances. Then we are able to glorify God in all circumstances. That is a beautiful way to live. I'll close with these words from uh, the prophet Jeremiah. They summarize what I'm trying to say in a poetic and beautiful way. Jeremiah the prophet wrote this. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He or she is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. When we can truthfully say, along with Paul, for me to live as Christ, then, even in the year of drought, we will not be anxious and we will not cease to bear fruit. Other trees that are not planted by the stream, they'll wonder where it's coming from. Where are you getting that fruit? I don't have fruit like that. What's that about? That fruit comes when we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. And when we can say that, that fruit comes in all seasons and in all circumstances. For someone like that, life is awesome and death is even better. Let's pray. Dear God, this is a high standard that we're reading about when we read about Paul in Philippians and how he responded to his circumstances. It's, a, it's amazing. It feel, honestly, it feels out of reach to me when I read it and think about it. Um, but Paul was a man. And to the extent that he was able to live like that in those circumstances, it's because of your power and your work in him. And you're the same today as you were then. Your power hasn't changed. And so we too have access to that kind of power. We too can say that for us to live is Christ. We can, by your grace and through your strength, by your spirit, we can. We can say that. Well, that's easy. We can all say that. But we can live like we believe it. And that's harder. But I'm asking you to empower us to live that kind of life so that we can know deep down in our hearts that death is not tragic. It's painful and it's sad. But ultimately, it's gain. It's gain. Because we enter into your presence. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.